Welcome to Mentioned in Dispatches, the podcast on the Western Front Association, with me, Dr Tom Thorpe. The WFA is the UK's largest Great War History Society. We are dedicated to furthering public understanding of the First World War and have over 60 branches worldwide. For more information, visit our website at westernfrontassociation.com. On the podcast today, Dr Alison Hines gives a lecture on the British manpower crisis of 1918. This talk was given at the WFA's 7th President's Conference in Birmingham on the 2nd of June 2018. Thank you. Before I start, I think I need to say a bit about my background, as I haven't spoken to any of you before. Um, I left the Army in 2002, and since then I've had time to study military history. I came under the spell of Peter, John, Gary, wherever he's sitting, and that was it really. I also worked as a battlefield guide for some 10 years, and I'm an accredited guide of the Guild of Battlefield Guides. And I'm a member of the Wolverhampton branch of the WFA, which they tell me is the premier <laughs> West Midlands W branch. <laughs> so to today's topic, um, manpower might not be immediately interesting to everyone. It's certainly not to my infantryman husband. Um, but I belong to the Rob Thompson School of Thought. Without manpower and logistics, an army can't fight. So manpower issues in early 1918. It's a big subject, and in the time allowed, I can only skim the surface. You might all be quite relieved at that. In giving an outline of the issues, I plan to address some long-held views. The army was deliberately starved of men. Lloyd George retained reserves at home. I'm sorry, Jonathan. The reorganisation of divisions in 1918 was a totally bad thing, and all reinforcements after the German attack were untrained youths. I'm going to split the presentation into three areas, manpower and recruiting difficulties, the BEF over, over the winter of 1917-18, and the impact of the German spring offensive. Firstly, I have to give a caveat and a warning. I'm limiting the talk to British infantry, other ranks on the Western Front. And there'll be big numbers. In attempting to look at army manpower, you have to operate a sort of double think. On the one hand, there's the immediate need for trained reinforcements to replace losses as quickly as possible. On the other hand, the requirement is to recruit and train more men. The lead time from call-up to being drafted was at least five months for an infantryman. So the War Office needed to plan many months in advance. For a man to be drafted in January 1918, he had to have been called up by August 1917. And it's that long lead time that affects provisions of reinforcements later on. So firstly, the immediate need during the winter of 1917-18 was to replace the losses sustained earlier in the year. 
By the end of 1917, the British other rank casualties on the Western Front had totaled almost 608,000. That's not including Dominion troops. That's purely British. Of these, some 30% had been killed, died of wounds or disease, were missing or prisoners of war. Of the 70% who had been wounded, many would recover sufficiently to fight, but many would not. It had been a costly year. In early November 1917, the Adjutant General's branch wrote to Haig and informed him they would send at least 140,000 men to France over the winter. They warned him, however, that the outlook for 1918 was not good. In addition to his present shortfall of infantrymen, wastage over the coming year was projected to be 780,000. And the BEF's total requirement up to the 31st of October 1918 was estimated to be 857,000. On the positive side, it was estimated that 418,000 infantrymen would become available during 1918, and this figure could, to this figure could be added sick and wounded returning. The anticipated shortfall by the 31st of October 1918 would be in the region of 259,000. I'm just bandying these figures around to set the scene about the numbers that they were lacking. Not surprisingly, Haig was seriously unimpressed and he reminded the Army Council of what they already knew. The GHQ staff had carefully analysed the War Office's figures and they, were conclude, they concluded that if six divisions were to be dispatched to Italy, the British infantry in France would be approximately 250,000, or about 40%, below establishment by the 31st of March 1918. This would not only paralyse the BEF's offensive power, but also reduce the amount of line it could hold. The War Office's figures for manpower available and GHQ's demands were never, ever going to agree. The subtext to Haig's letter was that GHQ did not want to send divisions to Italy, did not want to take over more of the front line from the French, as had been proposed, and did not want to reorganise the BEF's divisions, as had been suggested by the War Cabinet earlier in the year. Whichever figures are looked at, and in and whichever context, the fact remains that the BEF's infantry was under strength in the winter of 1917-18. It required immediate reinforcements, but also provision for future drafts, and the latter falls squarely into the political arena. By late 1917, there was a manpower crisis. To an extent, its roots lay in the unrestricted recruiting of 1914 and 15, but really the causes were wider than that. This was the first industrial war involving the whole nation, and everyone wanted men. 
By 1917, the government could no longer risk jeopardizing essential war industries, but by the withdrawal of excessive numbers of men for the army. And even within the army, things were changing. The perennial demand from GHQ was for more men for the infantry. But other parts of the army were growing rapidly. The artillery, the engineers, the tank corps, the Royal Flying Corps, to name but a few. And all had competing demands for manpower. To set the manpower crisis in context, on context, I have to go back to late 1916, when the then cabinet had actually agreed to the introduction of compulsory national service. But Asquith's government fell in early December and was replaced by a coalition headed by Lloyd George. And it rapidly became apparent that the increasing power of the labor movement and the trades unions would resist anything implying industrial compulsion. To confront them would potentially destabilize the newly established coalition government. Not surprisingly, therefore, Lloyd George's new war cabinet recoiled from immediate compulsion. A form of national service would be introduced, but it was to remain voluntary for the time being. Only once the voluntary effort failed, and they did expect it to fail, would the government be able to put before Parliament measures to make better use of the nation's manpower. Although a national service department was created and a newly appointed Director General, Neville Chamberlain, was appointed, he had to work within the voluntary concept. He was to produce reports and recommendations, but he had very few powers. He was reliant on the decisions of the War Cabinet to actually gain the manpower. But the War Cabinet would actually prove powerless to implement its own decisions. For example, whoops, sorry. We'll just have the lot. For example, in January 1917, it agreed the release of 100,000 men for the army by the end of the month. 30,000 were to come from agriculture, 20,000 from mining, and 50,000 semi-skilled and unskilled men from munitions. Also agreed was the release of the army of all men aged 18 to 22, except for those employed on work of vital national importance, namely those employed in steel production, agriculture, mining and quarrying, railways, transport or shipyards. But by mid-February, it was apparent that these decisions were already ineffective or causing problems. The Army Council reported that only 50,000 recruits fit for general service, i.e. fit for the infantry, had been obtained. And the Minister for Munitions (coughs) reported that there had been an admin error and the call-up notices had been received by highly skilled men. If these men were actually called up, it would lead, for example, to a reduction in the output of brass, 
meaning the loss of 300,000 fuses and 200,000 cartridges per week. Faced with these and other unwelcome outcomes, the War Cabinet resorted to creating a series of committees to consider the manpower problem. Although some recommendations were made and implemented, such as a new schedule of protected occupations, the overall number of men recruited for the Army continued to dwindle. From the Army Council's perspective, the War Cabinet's approach to the manpower problem was ineffective and the men were not forthcoming. The Army had been making its own attempts to find more men from within its existing resources. A review conducted by Lieutenant General Henry Lawson concluded that the numbers employed in the BEF's rear areas could be reduced by better organisation and supervision. He estimated that some 26,000 Category A men, those fit enough to fight for the infantry, could be combed out and sent to the front. And this could be increased by a further 12,000 if their places were taken by women. This latter suggestion wasn't universally popular in the BEF, but the numbers were needed and agreement was speedily obtained. The first ones would arrive in France by late March 1918. But these internal measures could not address the basic problem of declining recruiting. By July 1917, matters were no further forward. No progress towards compulsory national service was being made and the army remained short of manpower. Enter the Army's Director General of Recruiting, one Brigadier General Auckland Geddes. In his opinion, the present system of exemptions from military service wrongly protected the young, the unmarried men, because it allowed them to be sucked into the factory system. He produced a comprehensive analysis of the factors affecting recruiting in a modern industrial state. Remember, they were somewhere they'd never been before in this industrial war. He also put forward several proposals for change. One of these included the transfer of army recruiting to the Ministry of National Service. The effect of that would be that the control and provision of all manpower would be centrally based. Lloyd George rather liked Geddes' analysis. And in August, Chamberlain having resigned, Geddes was offered the post of Director General of National Service. Before accepting, he made sure that he had the powers that Chamberlain had not had. He was given a seat in Parliament and the status of a Cabinet Minister. Yet more delay was imposed, however, although the transfer of army recruiting to the Ministry of National Service was agreed, all other questions of detail were to be left until the new DGNS had had time to address them. But the deficit against the army's monthly demands was growing all the time, and by July, the shortfall was running at over 380,000 men 
of all fitness levels. I'm going to fast forward now to November 1917. In October, just 36,000 men had been recruited, and only two-thirds of them would be old enough and or sufficiently trained to be drafted by March 1918. So you've got this long lead time again. In mid-November, Geddes submitted an extremely detailed paper entitled The Problem of the Maintenance of the Armed Forces. Its aim was to force decisions from the War Cabinet on the priorities that they wished to accord to labour demands for the military and the civilian industries. Geddes had firstly examined where existing manpower was being used. In considering the army and the number of men already at home, he'd identified some 449,000 who would be available for infantry drafts within the next few months. He'd attached as an appendix a letter from Haig that said he needed 355,000 by the 31st of March 1918 to bring the BEF's infantry divisions back up to strength. If you do the maths, it thus appeared the BEF's immediate need could be covered from within existing army resources. But the Army Council refused to accept that they already had enough men. They were also providing, they didn't make life easy because they were also providing constantly different manpower figures. To give a very simple example, you'll recall that I said that in early November, the Army Council had stated that Haig's infantry deficit was 75,000 men. Just a few weeks later, they said that that was the figure for the worldwide deficit of infantry. It's a very simple example. I could give you more complicated ones, but I'll spare you. In the absence of consistent figures from the War Office, Geddes' figure now stood for working purposes. Having examined where industries were currently using manpower, Geddes then examined the various manpower demands. <coughs> The Navy had asked for 90,000 Category A men, and industries such as munitions, shipbuilding, and agriculture also needed large numbers for their work as soon as possible. The Army's demand was a massive 600,000 Category A, plus 320,000 of lower categories to be obtained by June 1918. I hesitate to say that the organisation I worked for was barking, but it was just out of this world, really. Geddes had carefully scrutinised these demands against the manpower that could be produced under the existing legislation. Only 150,000 Category A men were left. He now recommended that these men should be split 90,000 to the Navy and only 60,000 to the Army. 
Remember, he was a brigadier general, and he had been the director of army recruiting. In becoming DGNS, he hadn't gone over to the dark side. He just had to look now at the wider picture. And the only way he could see to obtain more men, uh, more men for the army, would be through new legislation. He made several proposals for this, cancelling occupational exemptions, limiting the power of tribunals, extending compulsory service to Ireland, dodgy, and lowering the recruiting age to 17 and raising it to 45, with an option to go further to 50. Action now lay firmly with the War Cabinet. Predictably, their first reaction in early December, this is early December 1917, was that it would be impossible to get the proposed legislation through Parliament. During further discussions, however, the full gravity of the situation became apparent, so they formed another committee, the fourth of that ilk. However, this time it would be uh, chaired by Lloyd George himself and consist of four other cabinet members. The size and the gravity of the task confronting it was succinctly summed up by Maurice Hankey, the cabinet secretary. The committee started taking evidence immediately and produced its draft report in early January 1918. And this draft report effectively became a working document. They recommended the following priorities for distributing the nation's manpower. The Navy and the Air Services, shipbuilding airplanes and tanks, food production, timber felling and food storage accommodation. No priority was given to army manpower. In considering the army's requirements, the committee had made two assumptions. Firstly, that the Americans would allow their battalions to be incorporated into British brigades, but they hadn't asked them, the Americans, and Pershing wouldn't agree. And also that a defensive posture and the development of fortifications on the Western Front would avoid loss of manpower. As the Army Council rather acidly pointed out, there was no evidence from this or any other war to support that assumption. It's clear from the recommendations they did make that they had accepted Geddes' figures as covering the Army's short-term needs. It was to meet its immediate manpower requirements from its own resources by reducing the number of battalions and divisions, by reducing the amount of cavalry on the Western Front, and reviewing the force allocated to home defence. But it wasn't all doom and gloom. On the positive side, some of Geddes' proposals for further legislation had been accepted, and a draft bill was to be put before Parliament. A new Military Service Act 
number one of 1918 would be passed by Parliament in February, but it's quite short. It simply reduced the period of grace following the expiry of existing exemptions, and it also gave Geddes the power to cancel occupational exemptions. A revised schedule of protected occupations was also issued to operate in conjunction with the new Act. Recruiting began to increase slightly, but the men now obtained would not be available for drafting until late summer at the earliest. So was the Manpower Committee right about the number of spare soldiers serving in UK, serving at home? GHQ certainly thought thought so, and that was another source of friction between GHQ and the War Office. In January 1918, a review of the troops required for home defence showed that 410,000 men were retained for this purpose. What the review didn't show was that there were actually more than 1.4 million men on the home strength. Many of these were employed by different war office departments or seconded to munitions work. And at any one time, there could be between 300 and 400,000 sick and men recovering from wounds at home. The Army Council claimed that the number of potential drafts for overseas was less than a third of the total and that most of these were not sufficiently trained or not old enough to go to the front. Less than a third is around 450,000, so we're back at Geddes' disputed figure again. So why were they at home and not in France? In his memoirs, the then Chief of the the Imperial General Staff, Robertson, would later admit that excessive numbers had been retained at home. The General Staff had been unable to reduce the numbers of men employed at home by other Army Council members. Rather sad indictment, really. So why were more not sent out to fill the gaps? Well, the prevailing view, thanks to Edmonds in the official histories, is that Lloyd George kept them back. But is there any evidence for this? There are plenty of examples of what Lloyd George said at various times and in various places, but what he said when playing to the gallery and what he could actually do were two different things. He simply did not have sufficient support in the War Cabinet or Parliament to impose a restriction on manpower for the army. Indeed, there are indications that he did try to get men sent out, For example, the minutes of the Manpower Committee meeting of 15th of December 1917 show him suggesting that men should be sent. And the Army's response. You get, in modern terms, you get the feeling they're not even on the same page. The Army Council was holding out for new men to be obtained from the rapidly dwindling pool of those left in civilian life. But as far as the the War Cabinet was concerned, the Army was not making the best use of the men it already had. Okay, I want to turn now to the BEF, where there were other issues concerning manpower. 
already been mentioned this morning, the re reduction of the number of battalions in a division had been recommended by the Manpower Committee. The War Cabinet had been trying to achieve this since early 1917, when the Army Council had said that no such reorganisation should be made until divisions could no longer be maintained at full strength. That time had clearly now come. On the 10th of January, it was confirmed that divisions were to be reduced in strength from 12 to 9 battalions plus a pioneer battalion. A list of 145 was sent to GHQ from which to choose the battalions to be disbanded. In selecting them, care was to be taken to break up battalions with the shortest service to their credit and to preserve as far as possible regular first-line territorial and the early, earlier battalions of the new army. The plan produced by GHQ was to reduce all British divisions in France between the 29th and the 15th of February. You, you can almost hear them saying, stuff it will do the lot. Only the Dominion divisions were to retain their existing structure. Instructions for the organisational changes required were issued by the general staff, whilst the adjutant general staff issued instructions for the redistribution of the men. As far as possible, they were to be posted to other battalions of their own regiments. Any men left over were to be withdrawn to core reinforcement camps or to newly reformed entrenching battalions. Not surprisingly, GHQ's timetable for reorganising the British divisions proved wildly optimistic and the reorganisation was not completed until the 4th of March. It was a great period of, it was a period of great heartache and organisational flux, but there were some positive outcomes. As Geoffrey Husbands, serving in the 1st 8th Sherwood Foresters, noted, the troops who arrived were at least experienced. But this wasn't the only area of change in the BEF at that time. In late 1917, it had been decided to reorganise its drafting and training organisation. Whether this was designed to avoid a repeat of the disturbance at Etaples the previous September, or whether it was simply that the front had moved further away from the bases, is not entirely clear. Whatever the reason, in future the infantry-based depots would simply receive and process drafts arriving in France. They would then send them forward to core reinforcement camps for their in-theatre training. The reorganisation started in mid-December, but it would be early February before the last of the new core reinforcement camps was in place. There's thus a period of flux in the training and deployment of infantry drafts who arrived in France over the winter of 1917-18. And finally, as if there weren't turmoil enough within the BEF with its internal reorganisations, in late January, the Supreme War Council 
had instructed it to take over more of the front line from the French. By early February, the front occupied by the BEF had been extended by 30%, from 95 to 123 miles, to be manned by fewer battalions. It had long been expected that the, the Germans would mount an offensive early in 1918. The War Office had done its best to send out more men over the winter and had sent over 167,000 infantry and cavalry reinforcements by the end of February. When the Germans attacked, however, they would be confronted by a BEF that was not only still slightly under strength, but was also still bedding in after the recent organisational changes. 21st of March 1918, Der Tag. British casualties mounted rapidly, but it was difficult to get accurate figures in the chaos. The 23rd of March, before the AG GHQ war diary, could show estimated casualties of over 53,000 other ranks. Emergency measures had been implemented, all leave stopped. The third echelon, the organisation that controlled the sending forward of drafts, was instructed on the divisions to be reinforced and the transfer of personnel where it could. And the medical services had been ordered to drastically comb out the convalescent depots. They were to obtain 5,000 A-men at once and 500 more in a few days. There were already some 30,000 drafts waiting in the depots in France, but until the situation stabilised, they could not be sent forward. It's obvious more men would be needed, and a cipher telegram was sent to the War Office asking for emergency reinforcements. The immediate response was that 2,000 would be sent daily and that number would be increased. Needless to say, the situation in France and the urgent requirement for reinforcements dominated the War Cabinet's discussions on the 23rd of March. Suddenly, there were men available. The Army found men. The War Office's Director of Organisation had identified some 170,000 who could be sent, 27,000 of whom were immediately available. Some 88,000 were currently on leave from the BEF and there were also 5,000 on commissioning courses and 50,000 youths over 18 and a half who had completed their training. The release of this last group required a cabinet decision, since it had previously been pledged that boys under 19 should not be sent abroad except in national emergency. It was reluctantly decided that time had come and agreement was given. Having confirmed the immediate availability of reinforcements and the necessary shipping to get them there, the War Cabinet now had to turn its attention to future sources of manpower. Geddes was authorised to cut the notice of call-up from 14 to 7 days and to speed up the rate of enlistments 
by creating more medical boards. A new, less stringent eye test was to be introduced that should obtain more Category A men for the Army. But the immediately available measures were only ad hoc. Without further legislation, there would be no possibility of obtaining more men for the Army for later in the year. It was opportunistically, one might even say cynically noted, that the present military situation could enable previously insurmountable political difficulties to be overcome. On the 25th of March, therefore, Geddes was tasked to produce a short bill for the War Cabinet's consideration. Meanwhile, the War Office continued to work on its figures and on the 25th of March confirmed that more men could be made available. Some 106,000 could be found, of whom over 95,000 were infantry. With the 88,000 on leave from the BEF and a further 18,000 trained men who would be available as draft by the 20th of April, a total of 212,000 men would be available for France within the next month. The official history shows that between the 24th and the 28th of March, over 39,000 men, including returning leave men, were sent to France. The arrival rate then rapidly increased, and during the first week of April, over 73,000 men were landed. More would follow each week. Fortunately, sufficient accommodation was available at the different bases for them as it was too difficult to send them forward quickly. Some men were being rushed out, but they included men of low physical categories, men who had recovered just sufficiently from their wounds to hold rifles, men recategorized as A after undergoing the new less stringent eye test, and many from the graduated battalions including youths of over 18 and a half who had completed their training. It was crisis management. But were the replacements all as inferior as later memoirs would suggest? In the absence of many surviving service records, it's often difficult to test the anecdotal accounts. However, unusually, almost all the records are available for 80 men of 9th Cheshire who would be killed during April 1918. This battalion had been under attack in March. Once withdrawn, it received 554 reinforcements and by the 8th of April was back up to strength. And by then it was recuperating in the nice quiet Messines area. Of the 80 men who would be killed during April, some 37 had joined the battalion since 28th of March. There were a few more, but I haven't got the records for those. Admittedly, it's just a small sample, some 7% of the total reinforcements received. But their records do give some indication of those who had been rushed to France. This is for you, Peter. Oh, actually... Some 22 of those killed were aged under 20, 
but all except five had already been old enough to be posted overseas. So they were already, all except five were over 19. So with the total killed, over half were young, fit, and having come through the young soldiers and graduated battalions, had received longer training than the adults four months. Of the six men aged 21 to 28, considered then to be the best fighting ages, five had previously been evacuated to the UK for treatment for wounds or ailments such as trench foot and diarrhoea. They'd been combed out in late March from their recuperation in the Western Command Depot. The sixth man, together with the 43-year-old, the single 43-year-old, had been combed, had previously served in the Army Veterinary Corps and had been combed out in 1917 to be trained as infantry. So those over the age of 21 who were sent out were neither the fittest nor the most willing of the arrivals. As I say, I accept this is only a small sample of one battalion, but it does show that for this battalion at least, the first crop of reinforcements were young but not all underage. Back at home, the final draft of a new military service bill was agreed by the War Cabinet on the 6th of April. In the Cabinet meeting, Lloyd George stated its purpose, and it's clear they still did not expect the war to end any time soon, and this new bill was aimed to make provision for the future. It didn't have an easy ride through Parliament, but was passed on the 18th of April as the Military Service No. 2 Act of 1918. Amongst its provisions that came into force immediately was the raising of the upper age limit for conscription to 50. It also granted the power to cancel occupational exemption certificates by proclamation. And the first such proclamation was issued on the 20th of April withdrawing exemptions from men under 23 who were fit for general service. Recruiting for the army now began to increase, rising steadily until it peaked at nearly 89,000 in June. It could not continue at that rate, however, without serious damage to the nation's economy. There simply were no more men to be had. So to sum up, the provision of manpower for the army must be seen in the context of the nation as a whole. By the end of 1917, the country was in the grip of a manpower crisis. Earlier legislation had proved inadequate to obtain the numbers required for the army. There seems no evidence from the records that the War Cabinet deliberately set out to withhold men from the, from the army. Instead, it appears to have been a systemic problem with the War Cabinet unable to force the great departments of state to release their men. It was also reluctant to jeopardise a coalition government by confronting the trades unions and the labour movement. It's actually an ill wind that blows nobody any good 
the German offensive actually enabled the passing of legislation to obtain more men. Despite what he said on various occasions, there is no evidence that Lloyd George retained reserves at home. Instead, I would argue that it was the Army Council that was reluctant to release the men. The reorganisation of divisions in early 1918, whilst causing great disruption, at least ensured that battalions were brought up to strength with experienced drafts. And finally, most of the reinforcements rushed out in March and April were already old enough to be drafted. Even the 18-and-a-half-year-olds had completed at least five to six months' training. But manpower would remain a problem. Old Bill had a suggestion. You probably can't read the, the caption. It says, the recruiting problem solved. It strikes me, Bert, if they combed this mud out, they might get a few more men. Thank you. You have been listening to the Mentioned in Dispatches podcast from the Western Front Association with me, Tom Thorpe. Thank you for all my guests for appearing on this edition. The theme music for this podcast was George Butterworth's The Banks of Green Willow. It was performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales, conducted by Chris Rusman, and produced by Biz Records. This recording is part of a collection of orchestral works by Butterworth, performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales, and supported by the Western Front Association. This is available from all good record stores under the record code BIS2195. Until next time.